Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Garland Pepper Presents podcast. I'm Gary Fox, your host, and today my guest is Darren Peters. Darren Peters is a psychoanalyst, lives in London, and we've become friends over the past six to eight months. Um, Darren Peters is a highly empathetic person, um, spiritual, and um, also very intelligent and kind. Um, he's an explorer. He's a person who is looking for healing in the world, and those explorations have taken him to uh, some interesting places. Uh, we've worked together on a few projects. Um, one is the Ascension. Um, Ascension. Uh, Darren, what's yeah. that? It's, yeah, Ascension reality. Yeah. That's what I was going to say, but I, yeah. I felt like I wasn't saying it right. Uh, so <laughs> Ascension reality, and uh, we actually first got together on a a uh, a project called the Humanity Collective, and the Humanity Collective was in response to uh, other rooms on clubhouse where uh, race relations were being discussed but everything seemed to be getting very aggressive there's a lot of pain and we wanted to look at um, being able to discuss race issues uh, multiculturally with a large broad audience um, and reduce the amount of kind of reactive um, behavior that we saw in a lot of the other rooms and darren put together and curated um, a just an amazing team of individuals who could facilitate and set up a space in such a way that we can discuss some of the most difficult issues um, in a, any way that that was productive. And it, it is still a very challenging, it is one of the most challenging things of our time, but uh, Darren has the courage and uh, and also the courage to reset and to take care of himself when he finds that, say, something isn't working. And uh, I think we all can learn a lot from Darren. Darren, good day, and how are you today? Hello, Uncle Gary. Yeah, I, I'm very well. That was a phenomenal introduction. I'm very humbled. Thank you. Very Thank well. you. Mm. Yeah, one of the things that really impresses me about you is um, your real desire to enact change through dialogue and opening um, yourself up to understanding things that you don't understand. Um, also recognizing that the world that you have experienced isn't the same as the world that others have experienced. And you've had some profound learning this year in that regard. Um, I feel so, like, so, yeah. go ahead. so you're, you're in London and uh, you grew up there. Um, you, do you go to private school and all that, or do you no, go to like public? I had the option to go private school, um, but I I didn't. I I figured mum was a single parent. I didn't realize because she worked in a bank that she actually had a scheme where she could have sent me, and I wouldn't have really had to have paid that much, right? Mm. Um, I only found that out later. I thought I was being the good. Um, child is said, no, no, no. Let's not break your your bank. It's fine. I'll go to normal school. Um, oh. found out later that actually, if I would have went, she actually had this scheme set up because she was uh one of the um supervisors in the bank that she would have been able to send me, and the bank would have paid for it. But well. you know, yeah, no, that's uh, one of the perks, you know. But no, I went to a normal public school. Yeah, so. You uh, you live in the same neighborhood your whole life for the most part, or did you kind of move around a little bit? 
I didn't actually move around that much. Uh, I only really recall being in two properties. I know when I was younger, there was a, a flat that my mum was in. But like I was saying, because she had been in the bank from um, her early 20s, or maybe even younger, maybe even like late teens, she had been able to um, get that mortgage sorted early and, you know, buy her property from a very young age. I had a very stable um, upbringing, you know. My mum was a very strong anchor in that respect, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're a you're a smart kid. We were talking earlier, um, and we both got the same, uh, I think, uh, responses from our teachers growing up, and that is that he's very intelligent. Uh, he'd do a lot better if he applied himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I was saying because you had asked me the question if there was any favorite teachers, and none really came to mind. But I did remember a number of them feeding back to me and to my mum. Yeah, Darren, he's very, very smart, very advanced, but he's he's not pushing himself. He doesn't apply, yeah. you know, he's, he, and to reach his full potential. And it's interesting because I feel like I've heard that word potential in so many contexts, in so many aspects and areas of my life, whether it will be work within the family, at school or whatever, um, never really felt like I was, you know, reaching that place. Yeah. But now I feel like I'm definitely stepping into either my potential or my purpose or my reason for being. And that's that's why I kind of agree to do this today, because even if I don't feel like I've necessarily achieved that monetary success, that I feel like so many other people, that seems to be the benchmark of, those that have made it I know through what I've endured what I've overcome and just how I have been able to process reality that is making me realize that I'm a success already you know Mm -hmm. and now let's see how it manifests yeah yeah so you it's been a long journey um So you're a black man, um, which is pretty common in London, I think. So that the racism's not super huge. I would say that in London, it's just more uh, covert. It's more insidious. It's more uh, hidden. Um, so it's very easy for um, those who don't come from my community to enact it but then deny it and then when things are brought up deflect it and be like oh no we're not racist look at america and yeah because america seems to be so intense with it and it's not that intense us black londoners feel it see it know the history mm. but because it wasn't as so entrenched and you know gruesome as it was in America, as it being the land that actually held the slaves. I mean, I come from the Caribbean. My family comes from the Caribbean. So I don't have to be on the soil where slavery happened. I can really just 
turn a blind eye to it as it were and just try and forget it i don't feel like any black person ever really forgets it mm-hmm. um or, or has that ability to whether mm-hmm. they're conscious of it or not i can't imagine what it must be like and i've said this to you before being a black american and having that history all being on your land but still feeling that oppression still seeing people coming from other countries and still rising above you knowing that your ancestors were the ones who built the majority of the structures and I I I don't know how I could walk around in that type of reality just thinking about it is just so hurtful to me yeah yeah so the history's there and and you know over the last few years they've taken down a lot of the uh confederate statues um but, you know, that still doesn't cleanse people's hearts and, and you know, maybe even makes the racist more intent uh, on on their, you know, the double down. Um, so, yeah, you really did notice a difference when you were on Clubhouse and you were witnessing the American experience for the African-American black person. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it really shocked you. And it broke your heart at some level. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, every time there was a shooting, because you had gotten more integrated, you were just like, holy crap. And, you know, it's it's really sad, but it is a different experience for, um, you know, in different places. You know, and America has its, even different parts of America have, you know, layers and differences um when it comes to you know racism where i live there's really we're not that blended out here it's pretty it's pretty much white people and mexicans for the most part um you know of course we have scatterings it's america so we do have a little bit of everybody here but uh it's definitely not like places where i grew up in california where there was just you know you would always see black people every day um for me uh, it it sometimes i don't see you know a black person for you know a week or two in you know just oh, wow. in in my little town but you know in my town i know all all the black people except for that one guy i saw this last week that i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so like, hey there's another guy i don't know <laughs> um but yeah, so uh, what I found here, because uh, I did some coursework, you know, when I was working uh, with a lottery and I did some HR, you know, coursework and we did did a training on, on racism. And uh, what I found here is that people, they don't have anything to fight against. So it's not even considered really. You know what I mean? It's, it's almost like it's a fiction in, in, in this area because if there is racism in this area and there is it's against mexican people because you know it's all about who everybody thinks is encroaching in somehow in some way on their reality and uh is, yeah. there is a, there is a difference in terms of how intense it is in america 100% but i feel like one of the reasons why i was so impacted by the trauma and the pain, the anger and the hostility of the Black American experience when I came onto Clubhouse was because I feel it touched an aspect of my lived experience that mm. 
I had to go through in my work in terms of police brutality. I don't know if I've ever spoken to you about the story of Sean Rick. Have I ever spoken to you about Uncle Gary? No, no, I'd like to hear it. Um, okay, so um, I've worked in mental health for about, let's say, 20 plus years. And uh, when I was working in a housing project as a mental health resettlement worker, this was before I moved and went into the LGBT charity sector for a number of years because I, I felt so let down by the situation that happened. Sean Rigg was a 40-year-old, and I'm saying his name openly because you can Google this person. It was such a high-profile situation that happened. And uh, basically, long story short, he was a schizophrenic. He was a rapper and a model. Right, so it's good looking. Out of all of the people that I remember working with, he was one of the ones that you couldn't see had a mental health diagnosis. I feel like that was to Sean's detriment because, you know, he did, you know, still go out and party and, you know, was in touch with his family and all of these things. So what happens to a lot of these people when they're taking medication and they get better is something just is like, okay, I'm well. I no longer need the medication, right? Mm -hmm. That's what happened to Sean. It happened a number of times, but this time his relapse got very severe. For about six weeks, he refused to take the medication. So he just got worse and worse. Now, this person was a black belt in Taekwondo. So a very dangerous person to relapse, right? What happened one Thursday, I remember it was, was... He, we didn't see him. He had locked himself downstairs. Got to about the afternoon time. Me and another colleague had to go down to make sure that he was okay. He was doing some martial arts, jujitsu moves, whatever. We was like, oh my god, okay. We needed to call the police. The police refused to come. And then he comes upstairs. We were there with the manager, about seven other project staff and service users. He was so dangerous outside, we couldn't even leave the project, right? Mm -hmm. We're calling the police again. They're like, has he hurt anybody? No, he hasn't hurt anybody. Long story short, he ends up walking barefoot, barefoot from Brixton to Ballum, which was about two towns away, mm -hmm. ends up assaulting um, members of the public, yeah? Mm -hmm. Because he's now assaulting members of the public, the police are called again. They only really hear black man, assaulting members of the public. He gets called into the van by a number of officers, whatever. He gets taken to Brixton Police Station mm. at 8.34 in the evening. He was pronounced dead by 9.05, right? right? So I was a part of that experience. I was one of the workers there. It took his family four years to fight for justice for Sean Riggs. Now, so this is why I'm saying that it's different, but the police brutality still happens, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to black people. That's what yeah. they saw. Black man attacking people. You know, I think there's maybe about eight of them. Because I was one of the workers there, I was involved in the coroner's call, all of those things. So obviously I can't go into too much detail. But what I would say is that the same thing that killed Sean was the, them using a prone position on him for about eight minutes. 
and that was recorded by a member of the public. That was the same position that that police officer and those police officers used on George Floyd. Yeah. So it's something that not only happens there, but happens here. And uh, this is one of the reasons why I think it touched me so deeply. Can you understand? Because I've yeah. been a part of a situation where I'm trying to help these vulnerable people and I wasn't only let down by the police, but also let down by the mental health professionals, his clinical team, that should have come and given him that medication in whichever way, but chose not to. So there was letdowns wow. and failures on many sides of the system. And after that, I remember saying, I feel so disgusted and so let down, I can no longer work in the mental health system. And then I moved and I worked in the LGBT charity sector for about five years and then I went into the process of becoming a psychotherapist and then I you know came back to the mental health sector when things had changed a little bit but that's just a little part of my um professional journey and Sean Rigg was a massive part in terms of why I kind of want to fight for justice um and and change the way how people view black people because uh this in, inherent fear um, is something that we really definitely need to challenge. And that's why I speak about my sensitivities. I try to be honest about my intelligence and my empathic side, because I know that that should shatter the stereotypes that a lot of people hold about black men. Wow. So that's really, that that's like right home. I mean, that, this the the similarities and you know and and so did you feel like because you were part of it there's always this thing like when we're a part of something we feel like we had some responsibility like if i could have done something is there something like that that you beat yourself up about mm, not really because we knew Good. that as the project staff we was doing all that we could to let the clinical team be aware that he mm -hmm. relapsed be aware that he stopped taking his medication it was down to them who right. chose not to come and you know do all of their procedures and protocols to ensure that this person who should be under their care and supervision takes his medication all of this is what came out in the coroner's court we had covered ourselves and I found I think that what was interesting was that I remember when I had to give my statement because you know me I'm quite blunt and direct when the um investigation happened I was the only one of the staff that was just like I'm really disgusted about this situation and I've lost all faith in both the police and the uh you know clinical team at present I can't be in this sector anymore I now need to look for something else because that was in the statement, right? When it got to the coroner's court four years later, the judge read that out because that was what was in the statement. And then he just asked me the question. He goes, so did you did you end up leaving the sector? I goes, yeah, I found another job within three weeks. And I just remember everyone just like, <clears throat> gasped, you know? And mm -hmm. so I feel like in that moment, I really was able to let people know the failure and how it had impacted us as staff. I wasn't left feeling guilty. I was left feeling completely let down and unprotected yeah. because we were the ones that were in that situation and we were calling for help and they never came. Good. The reason I asked that question is because I, I think a lot of people take false responsibility, you know, 
for for things that they actually have no control of but because they were connected to something that happened that was terrible they yeah. feel like it was they could have done something but i'm i'm really glad that you came out of that knowing that you'd done all that you could um i'm really sorry um sean riggs rest yeah. in peace thank you mm -hmm. thank you is it riggs or rig it's do you know r i g g s riggs yeah riggs yeah there's a big campaign about it and everything you know i think the the family members are still fighting for levels of justice but he's only one of many and that's the point isn't it you know when yeah. you look at uh the situation with george floyd and then when they, they start naming all of the other names like brianna taylor and all these other people around that time that had died it's it's really heart-wrenching that i think as black people we do feel like our lives don't matter and that's one of the reasons why i speak up because it's just a difficult reality to sit in especially when it feels like it gets said a lot of the time and there's many people that don't realize it but I feel like the saving grace for me and Clubhouse is that I've been able to witness and experience other communities that also sit with a lot of trauma and I would say before then I, I was locked in this space of feeling like it was only black people. And I was unable to recognize like the pain and the trauma of, let's say, the Native Americans and what happened to them in America mm -hmm. or my Persian brothers and sisters, you know, that I was holding space with them for a number of months on Clubhouse. Yeah. By me working through this trauma, I've been able to recognize the pain and trauma of other communities. But I also realized that some for some of them, it's hard for them to do the same because I was once there. I was once locked in that place of right. only seeing my own. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, we we get stuck in our own pain and nobody else's pain can measure up and and uh, you don't understand and all of that, right? I mean, right. when when you're in the midst of it, it is all encompassing. And, you know, I don't even know if there's, you know, if there's a quotient for pain, if there's I mean, you know, the doctor will say, is it a one or a 10? But um, I think a lot of times, especially when you get into these um, huge issues, the pain is um, global almost. It's it's massive. It 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 kind of overtakes everything in, in people's lives and uh, makes it difficult to feel like doing the right things because there's so much injustice. Um, and so some people just give up. But we can't. We can't give up. We have to keep our hearts in line uh, with with the mission of, you know, helping ourselves and helping others uh, through, this, pro through this process. To, we also have to recognize and acknowledge, and I think this is, and I'm so grateful for your work and support with what we did. You was one of the founders with me with Humanity Collective, and this is why I call him Uncle Gary, because I feel like there was a lot of people that, you know, were around me and supporting me and embracing me before I chose to do that work around race. And there was a lot of people that just stopped responding to the messages, no longer saw them anymore, you know? They didn't necessarily yeah. say why, but they yeah. just disappeared. And I've, I've said to you, a part of the reason why I did that was because I, I needed to see 
who's who. You've heard me say that, right? Yeah. That was a part of why I did it. I wasn't conscious of it at the time, but that was what happened. And I feel like, for me, the Humanity Collective was definitely a process, but it was one of those ones that allowed me to be able to evolve more into understanding that, yes, Black people have got a lot of pain and trauma, but my European brothers and sisters also sit with a lot of pain and trauma. And sometimes because our pain coming from the Black community, because it's been so pronounced and it's very obvious due to the slavery and everything, I guess my awareness also sits with my European brothers and sisters that maybe have had to experience being beaten up by a group of black people because they're just they're just releasing their frustrations, right? On this yeah. white person. And then this white person feels like, well, okay, I'm just gonna take it because, you know, I understand that they were really angry and they were really stressed. When I was doing this work, I've heard this story from about at least three different white people privately, right? And they haven't necessarily brought it into the rooms, why? Because I think they realize or they know that the pain and the trauma, what the black experience has been, has been so profound. But that doesn't mean that their pain and them being beaten up or them being silenced isn't also painful and hurtful. And my point is, is that we've all been affected by oh yeah social construct called race, right? And until right. we're able to come together and speak about it, we're all just stuck in our own heads, hearts, blocked hearts and pain. And that's one of the reasons why I always try and bring my authentic self speaking about not just the black experience, but also the complexities of being a black gay person and how that, you know, being rejected by my own community a community that has already been oppressed, right? How right. that has, has uh, affected me profoundly in terms of who Darren is, you know? Yeah. So that you went from mental health into uh, working with the LGBTQ community. Um, I think because you, you recognized there isn't an acceptance and there still needs to be it it's it's almost the same coin as racism at, at some level um and so your experience of that you know being gay black man and and we've had conversations about this and that is that your your community the black community you know quite homophobic. very homophobic yeah. and not very accepting of um the gay lifestyle in inverted commas uh or, or or someone choosing to be gay again in air quotes i do that because these are the things that i hear yeah constantly yeah. and uh why would anybody choose to be gay when they're already very aware of the stigma the shame the embarrassment right the insults that right. they're going to have to be subjected to. Why would someone choose that? 
It makes no sense. But this is the thing that people who don't want to understand or don't want to hear from a person who actually has that lived experience say, this wasn't my choice. This is just something that is who I am. I don't know why. I can't explain why. I'm just not attracted to the opposite sex. I'm attracted to the same sex. That that is it here's here's the question i love to ask those people Mm -hmm. do you remember when you decided to be straight exactly i mean it's 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 the body the body knows the mind knows it all knows what it is and what it wants and you know i'm i'm straight and i know that because my body wanted things that that looked like girls all along a lot like overwhelmingly too much so the energy is there and it's too much right and if you've got an undeniable urge then you know that's who you are what an undeniable urge (laughs) but people don't seem to want to hear that from those of us who are gay and have that lived experience and they seem to want to project their view that oh well it's a choice yeah. did you choose are you gay yeah. and, that, and that's why i don't even really waste my time anymore either with my family or with anybody on clubhouse to even go into that debate with people because yeah. it's an insult in one and it's an offensive one and i choose to be in spaces and connect with people who do embrace me the full Darren, the full package, but it is sometimes difficult being on Clubhouse in those spaces that seem to be predominantly black. And then the topic of the gay experience might get get brought up. And then you hear all of this homophobic rhetoric come out. I try my hardest not to take it personally. I try my hardest not to uh, let that lion be unreleased on the on 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 the stage. A lot of the times I just have to just leave, but I can feel that one point in time and one moment I am going to really just roar with some of these people because I've I've had to hear it too many times. And I've 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 been quiet and I've not really challenged because I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. But at the same time, they need to know that by them saying these things, you're really offending and putting down a group of people and, and and what upsets me is that it's coming from a community which is my community and i already know the stigma and the um prejudice and discrimination that we already have to sit with because of the color of our skin and i'm not even thinking of it as a place of like oh my god i've got to hold both of these things if anything i realize that the complexities of being black and gay have given me such a insight and an ability to do that required introspection to be able to transcend that identity and that's where my spiritual and awareness of consciousness kind of came forth you know yeah you know i find it ironic that the people who've been oppressed you know for centuries would so easily you know go to another class of of people or a group of people however you want to state it and and find oppression so easy 
you know, yeah. you, you know, you think, well, you, you understand, you have an empathetic understanding of being an outcast. Why are you outcasting, you know, somebody who, who's different than you? Because you understand being outcast because you're different. And so, you know, that kind of, I remember, I kind of know where it comes from because, you know, serving with, with African-American men in the Marines and such, there was a lot of the homophobia that, that went around in their jokes. Uh -huh. um, and I, so I think there's a bit of that, uh, just kind of machoism um, that's part of it. Uh -huh. um, also, oh, there's a huge influence of the Christian church. And, you know, 100%. Yeah. And I think there's, there's been a lot of uh, energy in that regard towards the gay uh, community, which, uh, you know, you can't go into a black Christian church and not find a gay guy in the choir. I'm telling you, there's one in every one of them. <laughs> not in every one of them. I can't tell you that for true, but I'm telling you, go to the choir. You're going to find little Richard up in there somewhere, <laughs> okay. you know, and, the thing is, is, is you know, the, uh, so many um, black gay icons are out there. I mean, Little Richard being one of them. And, wow. uh, you know, it. so you would think that, that it would be coming around faster than it is. But that still seems to be more so than in the white community. In the white community, there's, you know, you're saying people who are kind of racist are still anti-gay. Yeah. Um, but, you know, pretty broad Bread group I think people within now the white are... community, that's probably one of the reasons why I have this affiliation to you guys because being rejected by my own community because of my sexual orientation, it was my white friends and the white community that embraced Darren, right? So yeah. I remember when I came onto Clubhouse, it, it was quite comfortable for me to go into um, different spaces where there was like maybe predominantly white faces. And I remember putting my picture on there and as a sensitive feeling the stereotypes or the projections onto me. And that's one of the reasons why I took off my picture. I remember I had the cosmic astronaut for, for a number of... For a uh, long time, yeah. For a long time, right? I, I did that on purpose just so that I could feel more at ease just moving through clubhouse because there it is kind of like it seemed to be kind of centered in different racial groups a lot of these spaces whether people want to acknowledge it or not i really do see that and feel that and i feel like for me it was because i was comfortable around white people because they had embraced me when my own community didn't I'm only now really getting my family back. It's only been in the last couple of years. It was literally two decades that me and my family were just at loggerheads. You know, my sister didn't speak to me at all for about 10 years. Wow. My mum, my you know, she'd known from since early 20s. Um, and it's like I said, it's only been since she got sick with COVID last year that she even gave me back the keys to her house she had taken them away I wasn't really welcome to or free to just come you know with the key when I used to live it all the time my brother always had the key mm -hmm. the key was taken away from me do you see what I'm saying so yeah I had to deal with all of those 
different things from within my family and uh, within the black community. The white community definitely embraced that aspect of Darren. However, being a black person, there's still those unconscious biases that still happen. As being a black person, there's still these stereotypes that people would maybe project onto me and being a sensitive person, I would still feel that. But when I don't have my own community, kind of had no choice right so just explaining yeah. why I'm kind of comfortable to just move around the different races because I had to learn how to be yeah well you know the white community I think AIDS really flipped the script because I grew up it was racism and um anti-gay rhetoric were pretty open things like in the yeah. white community you would hear it all over the place uh, AIDS kind of started flipping the script on that because what happened is people who started finding out that people that they loved were actually gay because the disease was, was showing. And um, I think that really flipped uh, the script in America. Um, and then there was a huge coming out, you know, in the 80s because of the gay, because, I mean, because of the AIDS, AIDS epidemic, wow. there, were, there was a huge coming out and it started to become normal to come out. And by the end of the late 80s, kids felt okay to come out in high school, maybe closer to the mid-90s. Kids started feeling okay to come out in high school in America. Mm -hmm. So um, that scariest part of being gay in high school, um, where you are hiding, but, you know, we had we had kids who were so gay, it was just, you know, there's no hiding it, right? That you are what you are, and and it was very and, obvious, right? Yeah, like you know, some some kids are just they're flamboyant, obviously gay, and kids would pick on them, you know. I mean, brutally. Mm. Um, when I grew up, so when I was in the era where it was still, you know, that was a thing, and you know, the biggest insults we would, you know, hurl at each other were, you know, in terms of our sexuality and this, that, and the other. Um, so it took some it took some reckoning, I think, for this country and for all those bullies that we grew up with to kind of start seeing things like their uncle, their aunt, um, their their you know, their nephew, their friends. All of a sudden they're going, Oh, there's gay people all around. And I think coming out really changed a lot of that. And so the massive coming out in the eighties and nineties. And, and the norm of you come out, you don't hide. It really shifted for the gay community. Um, one of the other things, and then I've heard this from um, so many of the older gay men, was that just being able to live in a truth, not having to lie. Because if you lie about one thing, like the whole rest of your life becomes this one you know, conglomerate of lies to cover the lie. Yeah, And so that was the most freeing thing. And so, you know, some of the older men that, you know, they're more my age, but they grew up during, you know, or even older than me, but they grew up during these, these times where you didn't come out because it was dangerous. Um, they said once they did, it was just like everything shifted. And, you know, so I'm so glad that we've come along in society, at least where that's the norm, even in high school, which is used to be you know, scary place. It still is. There's still assholes out there. Yeah. Um, but in certain communities, because I feel like 
as we was touching on this before in the black community, there's a difference for some reason. And I think it's because they're already coming from an oppressed community. When I remember coming out to my mum, her first response was, but you're black, how can you be gay? Meaning, meaning that you've already got a big kind of X on your shoulder, you know? You're already disadvantaged. Yeah. This is going to disadvantage you even more. So she was coming from a place of love, but also fear as, as a parent, right? And right. I feel like this is a lot of the Black people's initial response. So they, therefore, they don't want to acknowledge that it's there because they're like, we've already got enough to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You don't want to add insult to injury. And there's the uh, other thing that I've kind of noticed is, you know, among the Black community themselves, uh, they hold high standards for each other. If you are in cahoots with somebody, you know, let's say, for instance, I, I worked for a, a manager who was black and, you know, there was like 10 people on our team and there were two, two other black guys on the team. And I got to tell you, he rode them much harder, had much higher standards for them than he did for any of the white guys. Yeah. And I, I, I what's that? Well, because I think you're representing, right? You're representing all of us. So we have to show up better because we just do. Yeah. You know what I mean? We have to show up stronger. We have to show up better. We cannot show any weakness. any weakness. And mm -hmm. so the standards were higher for him for the other black employees, for the black employees than they were for the white employees. Um, simply because he, you know, I think that was it. It's, you know, you're stepping up. Yeah. Um, you're making a name for us, for, for for the race in a sense. I mean, you know what I mean? It's, it's, and I've seen that a few times. I saw it in the Marines, you know. But you also said in the Marines, this it was like this macho um, behavior. When you said that, what came to mind for me was bravado and a lot of ego. And I feel like this is what a lot of black people use to hide their own truth i feel like this is a shield that a lot of black people put out there into society and into a system because they know that they are required to because they're very aware of the stereotypes the rhetoric and they have to shield who they really are mm -hmm. and put forth this false self this bravado, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was basically someone who just refused to do that because I wasn't necessarily able to. I didn't see the need to. I understood within myself, within my heart, and within my own consciousness that I am a good person. I am a caring person. I should be loved and respected for that, regardless of who I may choose to love or the colour of my skin, right? Yeah. I want people to be able to just see me for me. And that's why I always bring my authentic self. I know that there's a lot of people that they'll be like, oh, thank you for being so vulnerable, Darren. Thank you for being so vulnerable, like on Clubhouse. And I, I find that really patronizing. And I, I say that sometimes. I'm like, no, I'm not being vulnerable. I'm psychologically safe enough to share my truth. That's all that I'm doing right now. 
right my truth i'm not being vulnerable there's you were vulnerable when you shared it the first time but now it's it's part of your teaching exactly yeah and i'm allowing people to learn from my lived experience i feel like there's a difference right yeah i'm being vulnerable that being vulnerable is sharing something really dark private and personal that's happened to me that i haven't really worked through and i'm choosing to share it on the clubhouse stage that's when i'm being vulnerable right Mm -hmm. i'm sharing something of my lived experience that i've worked through and i'm okay with i'm i'm just sharing a lived experience so that you can get some value from it right there's a difference right so you are uh psychic now i gotta tell you i'm i'm um i'm kind of uh one of those i'm a skeptic (laughs) i am um i recognize energies but i don't you know i don't have any good definitions on them um i love how you pronounce that uncle gary like you are a psychic like i i still don't necessarily feel comfortable with having that as a label i guess but i would say that i'm able to experience a range of psychic phenomena yeah yeah you're saying it it runs in the family that's right my mum um is very gifted in this way my nannies as well my aunt as well other male members well with my mum my nana my aunt my mum being the strongest they have these dreams and visions where um like my mum for example I remember she came downstairs one day she's like oh my god I just had this she, she says dreams, but she knows when they're like visions because that's why she's explaining it. Yeah, she was like, I was just in this dark tunnel and it was just full of smoke and it's got really, really loud bang and there's an explosion. And then all of a sudden there were all of these like limbs everywhere and I saw a baby's head. I was like, oh my God, this is really intense. And then next week, the um, 7-7 bombings happened. Mm you know, in, wow. in, in in London. And that was like in the tubes and everything. That's wow. clearly where she was. There was another time where she was like, yeah, I just, I, I remember I was just taken and I was just on this beach and there was this water and then there was just all of these dead bodies and um, they, were, they had their sh- heads covered in the sheets. The whole bodies were covered in white sheets and people wearing masks. And then I remember after that, there was a tsunami in Asia. I'm just giving you the examples that you can relate to in terms of her dreams with mm-hmm. global disasters, but she has dreams around family members, all of these different things. It's been like that all my life. So to have, that's my mum. My nan has the dreams. My aunt has the dreams. So with the men in the family, the way how it um, manifests is that we're more able to see spirit and energy they they experience it in their dreams. We experience it in our daily waking life. Mm. Have you heard Alani's story about the angels? No. Yeah, she was uh, walking through uh, London, and she was at a convenience store, right? And this lady goes, "There's an angel behind you." Like she she looked completely gasped, and she had this happen to her um, like three or four times, just to mm-hmm. random people. There's, did you know, there's people to just like, you know, do the cross and all that stuff and be like, oh my gosh. And she's like, what's going on? You know, yeah. and she was, she said she was pretty skeptical at the time, you know, rocker chick. And she, but, uh, you know, it happened and it just kept happening. So then she started uh, painting those angels. 
Yeah. And then so, does she ever have any contact with the angels? Um, I think so. I um yeah. Yeah, for me, I think, I think she just paints them, me. she gets their energy and she just paints them. Yeah, for me, that's happened to me, especially when my metaphysical slash psychic abilities started really kicking in mm -hmm. in 2017. So to give you a little bit of context, yes, my family very psychic always been so intrigued by that so by the age of say like 15 16 i really started to read about parapsychology and things like that then i started to understand that this is linked to energy and spirituality so i remember reading the book the celestine prophecy excellent oh, yeah, book. yeah mm -hmm. by james redfield that then took me onto the path of like remote viewing and things like that and reading about the psychic spies and all of this kind of like phenomena. Mm -hmm. I spent the next 10 to 15 years just reading. I was a part of different groups, lodges, stuff like that, ancient Egyptian order, really delving deep into wow. the esoteric sciences, right? Yeah, yeah. Physical, all of that kind of stuff. But I had never really experienced it. It was still just my family that was experiencing it uh -huh. then fast forward to 2017 that story that you said that happened to that lady exactly the same thing that was happening to me people telling me did you know that archangel michael is behind you did you know that archangel raphael is behind you did you know what? that these ascended masters are guiding you and i'm like uh, uh 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 it happened about nine times in one year so then what? i need to start to understand what's happening i started to see energy i started to see sacred geometric shapes patterns grids all of these things couldn't necessarily understand it but knew that it was representing this advanced aspect of my wow. consciousness right then i started to be able to channel and receive messages from spirit and i remember the very first message that or word i would say that i received was reverence I was doing a sacred geometric grid with um, crystals with my friend Michael, and he started seeing these faces in one of these crystals, and they were flipping over. He was telling me, because he's seeing it, I'm not seeing it. He's just telling me, he's like, Darren, I can see faces in these crystals. And I'm like, well, who faces do you see? And he was like, there's, there's one that looks like Mother Mary, and there's another one that looks like the Buddha. There's one that looks like Jesus. There's one that I don't recognize. Okay, there's one with an Egyptian pharaoh. There's another one who looks like Merlin. And they said that they just keep flipping over. I said, Mike, it sounds like you're describing the ascended masters, right? A lot of stuff started happening once they kind of their energy came through. I started to channel the main message that I remember reading or receiving was the word reverence. And that means to respect that which is sacred. Because I remember at the time, the work that we was doing, we was probably not necessarily really, really respecting how sacred it was. After that moment, I started to connect more with the Ascended Masters, the level of energy, which is Ascension. And that's where, um, why when I first opened the house on Clubhouse, it was called Ascension Reality. That's more who I am on Clubhouse. My work with the Humanity Collective was just really a byproduct of the pain and the trauma that I got exposed to um, from the Black community in America. But that's why now I've I've gone back to Ascension Reality because that is who I am at 
my core, someone who's really connected to these higher expressions of consciousness. And because of the work that I've done and because of the healing that I've done in my heart, they're definitely able to connect with me more. And I'm realizing that my work with the highly sensitive ones, it's what is really kind of like showing me is like more my purpose now. I've never really understood what my purpose was. I feel like now going through all of this journey and process on Clubhouse, and this is coming from a psychotherapist who has done that introspection and that training, mm-hmm. I feel like I found my purpose. And it's to really work with the energies of the highly sensitives and the collaborative work, just like what we're doing together right now. You're one of them. You know, yeah. there's other people that have asked me to do podcasts and I've said, no, you've asked me to do it. I said, okay, it's Uncle Gary. I, yes. And that is fair. It back. took a couple. It, it did yes <laughs> but do you understand you've seen the shift that's happened to me yeah yeah no you've been you've been riding some uh big boats lately and uh you know you go in all in when you're uh when you're into a situation so um i yeah it, they weren't the best times for you to be you're working on other things let's just say that so um you know, we, we, we use the word psychic, sixth sense, um, but it's all a level of basically uh, consciousness. And um, there's a lot of ideas out there about what consciousness is. And um, I think we often think that we're conscious when we're actually just doing the same thing we've always done. And I believe at some level that is conscious, but at some level it is also unconscious i'm turning off my notification so i don't get dinged again um (laughs) yeah so you know at some level i think uh we are all walking in an unconscious state um and until we get to um our subtle self uh through meditation, running some sort of physical exercise, uh, correct diet where you can kind of get your body out of the way. Um, just go straight to, uh, you know, mind body connection and, uh, breathing, you know, for me, consciousness is reflected in the breath and the breath informs consciousness. Um, I mean, the whole universe is there for us, right? In each breath. And I find if I am truly acting in a conscious way, um, I know what my next move is without thinking about it, just be. And if I'm acting in a reactive way, I'm just, that, as it says, I'm reacting. And, and the difference is, for me, is the space, the space in between you know consciously acting on something sometimes you just take a little little pause and it'll breathe reflect on the outcomes that are possible based upon the choice you might make or might not make and then moving forward based upon you know the information received in a calm state and that's how i get to consciousness i'm not always good at it what's your take on consciousness Thank you for the question and thank you for really providing me with that build. Um, I think 
there's many planes of consciousness. And like you say, most people are not aware of these different levels in these different planes. I think some people just assume that there's this dichotomy between being aware and not being aware. And that is the different states of consciousness. That's only one aspect of it. I mean, I feel like in psychology, we talk about the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. And this is where Carl Jung talks about the unconscious reservoir and where archetypes come forth and all of these different kinds of things, right? That is a big part of consciousness. But my journey and my understanding of consciousness goes more beyond just that inner interpersonal psychological aspect and that more like you use the word subtle energetic and spiritual aspect right uh -huh. for me to get to that place my own inner consciousness needed to go through i call them the building blocks of consciousness right i've identified about nine of them i'll give you an example of three right so the first building block of consciousness that I've identified would be the knowing that psychic phenomena is real, right? If you're always in doubt whether psychic phenomena is real or not, you're always going to fall off, let's say, the first building block towards higher consciousness. Once that person knows that, yes, psychic phenomena is real and all of these different things happen and people have these abilities, whatever, then something switches, they're able to move to the next building block towards higher consciousness, right? The second one I've put is healing oneself from racial trauma. It's a building block, but it's also a blocker. I feel like a lot of the trauma, a lot of the pain that I've gone through as a black person, you may have experienced as a white person, blocks our hearts from being able to be activated to the true power and sense of what consciousness really is. The third one that I will share with you, and like I say, I've identified about nine, but I'm only sharing three today, is the understanding of the power of the heart. For me, I remember going through a process when I got um, initiated into waking. You know, you was talking about the example of the lady who saw the angels. Same thing happened with this waking master. He saw my energy, but he also saw how blocked my heart was because of all of the rejection, pain, whatever that I'd gone through. He took me through a process of giving me Reiki for four days straight, focusing on unblocking my heart. It was once that person had unblocked that energetic block when a lot of the metaphysical abilities kicked in. And then I was able to be switched on to the power of the heart, but also that higher consciousness and spirit really resides in the heart. And a lot of the work that we do in connecting with others on a conscious and higher conscious level really comes through the heart center. It doesn't necessarily come through the mind. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it totally does. Um, Wow. So knowing psych, uh, that, that psychic is real, that, mm -hmm. that uh, healing from racial trauma, mm -hmm. and that's for all of us, because I think we've all been affected at some level. Mm -hmm. um, not so much me as you, but there's still mm -hmm. some stuff there. Mm -hmm. Understanding of the power of the heart. Mm -hmm. And then the spirit resides in the heart. And the only way to unlock 
and get to your true power is um, to unlock your heart. And remember when I done the room, Heart Warriors, that was one of the reasons why I did that because I remember when I was doing uh, um, Ascension Reality rooms last year, uh -huh. I had done each room on the specific theme of these building blocks of consciousness that I had identified. If you remember after the Heart Warriors, the next one was the race one. But then after we'd done the racial healing, it was so profound and there was so much that came forth. I was like, I need to focus more on this because I realized that there was so much more healing that I was required to do. But the rooms that I had done before that in that club covered, I wouldn't say all nine of the building blocks of consciousness that I've identified, but they probably covered about five or six of them. I've only given you three, but I'm showing you how my mind and my journey works when it comes to consciousness. All of these things were things that allowed me to go deeper. All of these things were things that allowed me to connect to a more higher aspect of myself. Remember speaking about angels and ascended masters, the ascended masters were beings that were kind of sent forth from a, a higher consciousness, higher octave of spiritual plane and were sent to be manifested in the physical to help guide people to get to that place. They were all masters of the heart, but they were also connected to their, what's known as their I am presence. And the I am presence, if you're thinking of a multi-dimensional aspect of spirituality, it's the kind of pinnacle of that subtle being. And I feel like that is kind of like the places where my journey is taking me to. And sometimes I reach, but sometimes you also get brought back down to earth because there's so many different traumas, pains and obstacles that we have to face. But just having that awareness of these different planes and these different levels, that is kind of like who I am, someone who's very aware of these different planes. Mm -hmm. And I, I really want to be able to help guide people in understanding the complexities in this reality, because that is how this reality has presented itself to me. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I keep getting hung up on that. Number one, knowing that uh, the psychic is real. Like I said, I am kind of a, um, although I'm sensitive <laughs> and, I, and, and I understand the energies and I feel like there's certain things that I know that I, you know, that, that I know when I don't know why I know them, you know what I mean? Um, I, I guess, you know, for years trying to believe and then the word trying to believe in different religions and such, as I've gone through and explored, um, I've always had that kind of really strong sense of skepticism in my, in my, it's just ingrained in me and, and it probably has to do with trust issues for the most part. Um, you know, trusting authority in general and religion being what big authorities, um, you know, and just finding that it didn't quite fit. Everything didn't quite fit for me. But I have found in the last year that just really um, that there are a lot of subtle things that I didn't know until I meditated. In other words, there's places in my body that I can go to. There's energies that flow and geometric energies that that happen when when in deep meditation and that this body 
and this brain seem to be one thing, but it does seem like there is something else that is looking at it all, like this observer observing this all. And that's the place I've been going to connect and uh, getting to through meditation is this kind of sense of self looking at self, you know, the observed self. Mm -hmm. And being able to make choices from there is, is uh, I don't know, it's like you're in the cab of a big truck. You can see, you can see further down the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in so, terms of you being a bit stuck on that first one, yeah. my question to you is, have you looked into remote viewing? Uh, no, no. I Do they stare at goats? Um, <laughs> no, it's basically, um, they were doing rooms on Clubhouse about it. And even though I had a family that were psychic, are psychic, that was something that was already therefore switched on for me. But I recognize that others may not have that. So remote viewing is something that is a governmental um, approved body of work. And yeah. there's basically psychic spies and they teach people and there's programs on it. And there's people even within the Ascension Reality community who have been on these courses and can speak about how th they have been taught their psychic abilities through remote viewing, because that's essentially what it is, being given wow. a set of coordinates mm -hmm. and through the mind, through your consciousness, you're able to perceive it, you're able to sense it. That's what remote viewing is. So it's a governmental proved um fact that psychics and psychic phenomena is real so mm. that in its sense once you start reading about that that skepticism should go because it's a proven fact that they can train people to be psychic and they have been using psychic espionage and stuff like that so but if you don't know you don't know right and this is the right. whole point of consciousness as we're talking about awareness and once right. these things hit your awareness once you know then a switch switches on you're able to move to the next layer the next building block and i'm explaining yeah. this because i've gone through it so therefore i've identified it i don't speak about it a lot in these rooms because everyone seems to have arrived everyone seems to know it right but in this space mm -hmm. you've asked me the question and i'm sharing how i got to be that person who has the ability to connect to these higher forces. It didn't just happen. I had to go through a, a whole journey and a number of tests and initiations even to be able to get to that space. Yeah. And how does it serve you? It allows me to believe more now in myself, but it also allows me to trust in the greater forces around me because knowing that they're there knowing mm -hmm. that they guide me sometimes when the negative things may happen in my life I'm very quickly able to see the silver lining I'm very quickly able to identify okay maybe I misstep there or maybe this is happening for the greater good once yeah. I'm able to do that 
step out of the wallowing, step out of the um, feeling guilty or judging myself, then mm-hmm. more messages and guidances come. And then the more expansive aspect of it opens up to me. So I would say that's how it serves me. The way how my consciousness works, there's me, but then there's also this connection to a higher aspect of me. I'm learning more and more to be able to work interchangeably with it. I'm noticing more and more when I speak on Clubhouse, when I've uh, released a lot of the anxiety, released a lot of the self-doubt, and I speak from a natural flow of Darren, this Mm -hmm. higher aspect comes out more and more. And I hear it in the way how people have been responding to me in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. So we, we we do see more when we come from the heart. Um, it's it's another it's it's another set of glasses, really. You know, it's like it's a whole another way of looking at the world. And when you start breathing and you're really recognizing where your heart is in all situations, um, I find that I make better choices. And um, if I go against my heart or I'm being forced to go against my heart, I find the bitterness almost chokes the life out of me. So, yeah, that's number four is where I, I really reside. You know, spirit resides in the heart. And I, I really have come to that over the last year. I'm still not clear. Um, about how to uh, bring that communication to to the brain. I, 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 wait, I'm not really sure how I'm trying to say this, but translating it into um, structure, I guess, you know, because there's the feelings and the, and the story of the feelings and then moving that into structure is, is, a, is another part of the game. And um, so I've seemed to have been challenged by that a lot. Um, structurally moving things um in you know process and things like that i think we're all challenged by it because we exist in a world that people don't seem to value or even recognize the importance and the power um that resides in the heart it feels like we're in a world where it's so egocentric and money orientated and a lot of these things come from being very mentally focused and driven. And any of us who are sensitive or connected to our heart center, that has seemed to be seen as a weakness. And uh, that's why that in itself stops us from connecting to this power because we've been taught that it's not a power, it's a weakness. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was just something to process and to, to work through because I know it's something that I've had to go through internally there's a lot of conflict there you know you want to be connected to it but it feels like a weakness at the same time as well and I think it was only for me when my higher guide showed me the connection with my abilities and my heart center mm-hmm. where I then realized it's not a weakness it's not a curse this is actually a real blessing and it's one that I I recognize not many people either have 
or have unlocked or have connection to. And the beautiful thing for me on Clubhouse is being able to find those people who naturally have it, like yourself. Some may be blocked by it or from it. Some may be very silenced by it. And I feel like once I started to open a house, Ascension Reality, and all of these sensitives started to kind of come, and then just us speaking and realising that a lot of us may be the quiet ones on the stage, but it doesn't mean that our consciousness and our hearts aren't really profound. That's what I started to see. And that's where I feel really motivated to do this work to assist the sensitives in healing their blocked hearts and, and help them remember that it's a real blessing. It's not a curse and you don't need to be silent anymore. Yeah. Well, a lot of times they're silent because they know the truths and they say them too much and people get exactly. mad. Exactly. People don't like it. Yeah. Wow. So just you've been on quite a journey. You know, grew up pretty average kid, I would think, normal kid, a little higher, you know, intelligence than most. You know, um, you get out into the world. I don't know. When when did you discover you were gay? How old were you? I would say probably from the age of like 15, 16. Yeah. That that self-awareness of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really started to weigh heavy on my head and on my heart. I couldn't escape this inner knowing and this inner truth that I'm more attracted to guys. Yeah. Just couldn't get it. I mean, there's no controlling sexuality. Anybody who's experienced sexuality mm -hmm. can clearly tell you there ain't much control in it other than restraint. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Couldn't do anything about it. I was just like, oh my God. And it, it was just such an internal, it was just mayhem inside. And I, I remember I got to, I think, age... 20 21 and it was just affecting my mind so much i remember being on the tubes reading papers and the words gay used to just yeah. come out in big bold letters or queer you know and i was just yeah. oh my god if i don't speak about this or if i don't be honest i'm i'm going to literally lose my mind yeah that's how i felt you and imagine people who think about those people who had to live with that for like you know, 30 years. There's a closet. Yeah. Well, how do they do that? They do that by masking. They do that by having a wife and a yeah. family. And, you know, so the society's not really looking at them in any way because they've hidden behind this false truth of having a wife and a family. And they're not necessarily really caring. No, I'm not going to say that they're not caring. Mm -hmm. It's just their choice in how to handle the situation for me mm -hmm. luckily for me i didn't get involved with any girls or whatever because the sensitive part of me knew that that would be really unfair to that female right it's interesting yeah. because i do an lgbt room and I'm obviously out of respect i won't say the name but there is um, um a gay man and his ex-wife that are both in this room right yeah and only last week they kind of both really opened up about um 
let's say where they're now currently at, right? He was at a space where he had the wife, he's got children, and he is now free to be gay. And he mm -hmm. struggles with, you know, um, sometimes being a gay father, right? Yeah. Must be quite difficult. However, when the, the wife opened up or ex-wife opened up, all I can say is that I felt so sorry and upset with the situation that I think she spoke on because he was her first partner. Oh. She's now not had anyone since. Oh. She still loves him dearly, Jesus. but she feels so psychologically damaged. Fucked. Right? Yeah. And for him to be in the room to hear that, I, I couldn't even, there were no words. I wow. I didn't know. It just felt really like, should we even be here to, you know? Wow. But she was just being honest. And I feel like that was an example of what happens because of society makes people forced into the closet and forced yeah. into these kinds of situations, the damage that it does, not only to the, the gay person who's had to live that life, yeah. but the collateral damage is the female. Okay. and the children that are now caught up in this situation. And I put my hand on my heart and thank God that I wasn't one of those people who done that because I don't think that I would be able to live with that guilt. Yeah. Yeah. My friend in high school, he, he did that, you know, of course he was Mormon and his dad taught religion at BYU. So he was, you know, kind of compelled to be as straight as he could possibly figure out to be, went to, you know, what do they call that? Uh, reconstruction sexuality what are those conversion camps where they convert you back to straight make make the make the gay go away thing yeah he did all of that stuff went on a mission come back he married a woman uh they were married i think six to eight years something like that and he was miserable the whole time and you know not good for her and uh and you know doing what he's going to do naturally so he ends up cheating in the marriage and uh and uh you know they i guess they're still friends but you know Finally, he comes to comes to terms, and finds himself a man that he's in love with, and uh, you know they they've been together for I think maybe 15, 20 years now. But yeah, he did the thing, you know. He tried to do everything he could to cover him, him his reality up because, you know, he's a, he's a man of faith. He believed in the church and he wanted to be part of it, and his family's part of it, you know. And so he, you know. You had to give that up, right? You have to give up this part that's very special to you, this sacred spirituality. And uh, and then, of course, family, and there's ridicule in the Mormon church at that time, you know, is paying for bills to, uh, uh, you know, stop uh, gay marriage in California. So, you know, the church is getting in the way of this, and it makes him feel like he's, he's you know, half a human, and his family finally came around after he finally came you know, to terms and got married, you know, not his whole family, but his parents finally did. And, uh, and then some of his sisters, now he had 12 sisters, 11 sisters and a brother. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> yeah. Big Mormon family. So there's a few that are still, I guess on, you know, having a hard time with it, but he's, you know, just by being honest, he's, he's really improved his relationships all the way around. It's really hard. Um, I feel like what gay people have to go through is not an obvious thing unless you was like, like as you said earlier 
the flamboyant type. Yeah. But not the gay people are. No. You know, people will be surprised, like, just how normal, you know, because we're just normal men, right? Right. So it's, it's an internal battle that we have to go through. And I think a lot of the times why there's a lot of wise gay people out there mm-hmm. is because they've had to do that internal introspection. That's yeah. how I how I've kind of identified it because some gay people are very wise and very astute. I I recognize that when I was in my teenage years, some of them can be a bit wild and out there as well. That's just sure. life. Right? Cross section of all society is there. Exactly. Um, but we do have stereotypes and, you know, the flamboyant is the stereotype, but it's not, I, I don't even think it's even the norm. Um, you know, as no, it's just I, the most obvious, that's all it right, is. Right. Right. It steps out and, you know, it's just and, the most and, obvious. Yeah. But I mean, there were some effeminate kids in, in, in high school that, it, you know, they just, there were, that's the obvious right whereas there's there's gay men like yourself you know strong big strapping brutally men who could tear others from limb to limb if they were so inclined but we're still gay (laughs) but still gay still gay (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah yeah and you know i I worked in uh in portland and you know with the lottery i went into a lot of bars and so there were some gay bars gay bars are kind of going away because now there's no need to hide in a gay bar. You can go to any bar. Not you only know. that, I think it's also because of the apps. I think because of the apps mm. that connect people oh. through the phones, <laughs> there's also no, no more of a need for people to yeah. go into bars. I'm not saying that. Swipe bar- right, save money on drinks. Kind of. That seems to be <laughs> a lot of people are saying this. And, but I feel yeah. like a lot of people are also missing so the, I was noticing this before the apps and actually I was talking to an owner of the gay bars and he's like, yeah, we, you know, he had like a couple gay bars in the day. And then he was like, well, we closed, we just turned that one into a regular bar and we do all of our, our, you know, coming out stuff, this, you know, the things that are gay bar that, that happen, you know, the, the coming out shows and things like that, then, you know, all of that, mm-hmm. those still happen at, at those bars, but yeah, they, they don't they're not as exclusive anymore because you know, you can go anywhere in Portland and be gay. There's no, who, who cares? No one really cares. Think things are definitely changing in that respect. I just hope that with the race side of things, yeah, things That's get a- better, but it just seems like people are trying to censor the history a bit more. I, I know that. Yeah. With the Florida. Yeah, in, in America, that's happening. I'm hearing a similar thing in the UK. Um, a book uh, that was talking about colonialism as being blocked from being published now. And I'm like, oh, God, OK, I'm not sure why people are yeah. trying to censor what's happened. But at the same time, I, I, I do want to recognise that we have come a long way. And, you know, there's so much being written about it. I feel like a lot of us are aware of the history. I know that the younger people need to be aware as well, but we have come a long way and I I do want to celebrate that as well. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, I don't, it's not the same world that I grew up in. I'm telling you for, for gay people, Mm -hmm. it's not the same world. It's, it's, it's much better. It's so much better. There's still kids that are scared. You know, my daughter has, you know, a friend who's 
gay and hasn't told his parents yet because it's just, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, Darren, I love you. I think um, we did a pretty good show here. What do you think? Yeah, my, my uncle Gary, can I just say before you close? Yeah. The reason why you are Uncle Gary for me is because not only of your sensitivities, but the paternal energy that I get from you. And for someone who never had a dad, I yeah. realized that energetically, that was why whenever you was in the room, when I heard your voice, as a sensitive, I could just pick up this big heart, this real healing energy and this kind of protector from that paternal father point of view. And that's why for me, I just, you know, naturally named you Uncle Gary because on Clubhouse, you definitely feel like family to me, you know? And uh, it's just been a lovely um, experience getting to know you. So thank you. That was really wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so this show goes all kinds of different directions. And so I, I really loved this show today. It was very broad, very deep. A lot of uh, things to consider. Um, I'd like to thank you all for listening to the Garland Pepper Presents podcast, if you can. Um, and I'd like to thank my guest, Darren Peters, today. Um, beautiful friend. We're going to have a friendship for a long time. I know this. Um, and I would like to leave you all with my my closing. And my closing is this. Love yourself and love your others. Garland Pepper, out.